0: This is Southeast Asia Crossroads, an educational podcast from the Center for Southeast Asian Studies at Northern Illinois University. In this episode, Mitch Hendrickson, specialist on the rise of Encore, comes by to share new insights about this epic civilization. Well, welcome to another edition of Southeast Asia Crossroads. I'm your host, Eric Jones, and with me in studio is uh, Mitch Hendrickson. Uh, welcome, Mitch.
1: Oh, thank you very much for uh, having me, Eric. It's great to be here.
0: Mitch is a uh, uh, landscape archaeologist in the Department of Anthropology at University of Illinois, uh, Chicago, close by, and uh, he paid us a visit, telling us uh, about some of his new research, and so, again, thanks for um, coming to campus and uh, yeah letting us geek out on encore a bit it's uh,
1: <laughs> it's always fun yeah
0: it's one of those it's one of those um as as a as a kid basically I went to Indonesia and seeing I remember seeing uh Borobudur, uh and just blowing breaking my mind like I had never you know you 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 grew up kind of a man you you think it would be Egypt or something and on sort of scale like that but i, I it, it just um uh, that here was something that I had never heard of before. That was just you know more m- massive and and intricate, uh, and you know and then they kind of then really started thinking of like the society behind that. Like how did that you know just and and kind of move me to, to 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 know and figure out. And the, I think the same thing happens maybe maybe uh, by a factor uh, in in encore. So tell us tell us for those of us who don't know. Um, uh, what is Angkor and give us a sense of its its scale and what we should, why
1: we should care about it. Well I think I kind of have had the same experience that you did in that um, I'd always wanted to work at Angkor because it's one of those um, it, it, it elicits this romantic notion of, of the uh, state that's in the jungle that's the sort of uh, view of what we're trying to discover and then you actually visit the place and what's fascinating is that Angkor, we often think about Angkor Wat, which is the big temple that uh, you often see uh, in tourist magazines. Um, It's actually on the the Cambodian flag. And... Angkor Wat itself is the w- only one temple inside the what we now refer to as Greater Angkor, which is the city around uh, the, this massive uh, religious complex that uh, established between the 9th and the 15th century. And if you think about scale, scale is really important with Angkor because Angkor Wat has one temple. One temple actually is the size, you could fit the Vatican inside of it. That's how big it is. And then if you scale that's one, out, that's one temple. Yeah. It's just one temple. The moat is 200 meters wide. Um, it's got a massive- 200 meters wide. Yeah, 200 meters and, wide.
0: And dug, obviously dug by hand. Dug by
1: hand. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. But what's important is if you look out from that, you get, there's hundreds of temples around Angkor, just the city- And then they have all this infrastructure, infrastructure which includes uh, canals. And I think we're all, if you're aware of Angkor's relevance in the the sort of popular culture in the media these days, it's a classic example of collapse. And one of the narratives associated with collapse is its integration with its water network. And the water network that they built included canals that are uh, 12 miles long. They have... Uh, reservoirs that are five miles by a mile and a half wide with banks that are 30 feet high. They're all, and it's all built by hand over a period of maybe 40 years for some of these things, maybe less for some of these massive pieces of infrastructure. So if you want to talk about a scale... For I think what is Angkor about what, 200, 300 square miles is the is the area that you would in kind of encapsulate as greater Angkor. The population in the twelfth century was seven hundred and fifty thousand. Paris was ten. Ten thousand. Ten thousand people.
0: And and I mean we and we gr- we grew up imagining sort of uh you know, Europe is the whole you know, these stereotypes of that uh, Europe is the kind of industrialized, urbanized uh, um, kind of place, and, and Southeast Asia is, is – and Asia is this sort of uh, rural, agrarian, uh, pastoral, um, uh, or worse or stereotype, backward. Uh, and, yeah, yeah, and, exactly. And it, all you have to do is, though, compare um, like to like and you know, a city like Paris being completely dwarfed by – or London – uh, yeah, or exactly. any of them. Yeah. Name one. Yeah. <laughs> in the medieval
1: right. period in Europe, you're talking about tiny places, right? And here we're talking about a scale of of uh urbanism that's unmatched anywhere in the world.
0: And and part of that story is of course this uh its 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 kings and its rulers um dedicating in stone um much of much of or the, these massive monuments that that are still with us and so uh, we have I guess we have something to hang our hang our hat on at least as a as a, as a, th- as a thumbnail reference so if you if you if you look at look at um uh, encore today if you you know Google Map, I encourage you to our folks to go look at these oh, pictures for sure. of it, these it's things so fun to look through yeah. um what what would it have looked like uh in its heyday what if you'd like it like an aerial view because because now it's kind of like you have the the encore Watt, and then and then there's some there's sort of trees and secondary jungle um, and then city, well, what did it look like in its heyday?
1: Well, if you, you think about the infrastructure that I just talked about, so there's hundreds of temples around and, and, and you have this water infrastructure. And for the first, I'd say probably 100 years of research that had been conducted on Angkor, that was the focal point because it's the most visible thing. Uh, the problem with understanding Angkor as a city is that, of course, the, the habitation sites are raised, they're on mounds, and the mounds would have had houses that are on stilts. So mm. it's really difficult to get a sense of what the city looked like. And,
0: and most of that is vanished fa- now. It's that, gone. It's gone. perishable. Yeah. It's all wood, yeah. right?
1: So, so we end up with ceramic scatters and mounds that uh, a colleague of mine, Christophe Pache, did a, uh, an amazing a job in the, in the 90s of going around and mapping the southern part of Angkor using air photographs and then doing on the ground survey. And it took him a very long time to do that. And the big revolution that happened in Angkor was the advent of LIDAR. And LIDAR really transformed our understanding of it's not just these temples with uh, a, a sort of farmland and bunded rice fields around it. We actually began to get a sense of the layout of grid systems, particularly in the core area. So like street axes. So, so,
0: so LIDAR again is this, is this laser system that you, that, that you that you fly over and it can penetrate tree yeah. trees and, 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 see things underneath the forest canopy. That, yeah. Yeah. It's, right. it's,
1: it's an amazing uh, technology used that essentially is a, is a, a laser measuring system that you put to the onto a helicopter or a plane, and it just bombards the landscape with these pulses. And it's like a survey instrument instrument. Yeah. And as a result, you can get these really, really accurate topographic maps. And the landscape that came out from the LIDAR completely changed what we knew of what seemed to be sort of completely forested areas with nothing underneath. When the the ability of LIDAR to actually strip down the forest, because you can essentially calibrate the machine to take the furthest point. And it'll maybe hit leaves and whatnot, but they've got it so good that they can actually take the, the furthest point from the plane calibrate that and make this amazing digital elevation model which shows us what the landscape's like. And that tells us about where people are living, of which the hundreds of thousands would have been occupying various types of um, spatial organizations around Angkor. It shows us also how they're modifying the landscape and gives us a view of different types of infrastructure. Ones that we knew, like the road system that the Khmer built, which spanned out from Angkor into its various provincial areas. Um, and so it's it's been this really great key, but it's, it's a map. And the map now needs to be investigated intensively. And it's kind of like we can address problems in Angkor more specifically now because you can target it. You can say, we want to know what's happening in this intersection. Why is the infrastructure like this? We've never seen a layout of a... Uh, a reservoir and, and a temple in this way. So it's now opened up the door for literally mm. hundreds of years of work inside the capital. It's really, it's a, a totally exciting um, time to actually be working in, in Cambodia.
0: And, and if you're trying to figure out, for example, like where to dig or like this suddenly, you, 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 it's not so much poking around in the dark uh, out in the jungle. You can say, you can really have a very cute sense of, your uh, your 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 gold mine is probably here is that right is that, that it? that's yeah.
1: exactly it it's 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 helped archaeologists working in angkor immensely and in fact uh, Damien evans who's the one who's been spearheading uh, the the lidar missions over the the last uh, 5 6 years um, he managed to get lidar over the site that i work at at preakon of khomphuk's phi which is about 60 miles to the east of angkor and we had done in credible surveys, what we thought were incredible surveys, and had uh, walked around the landscape and were publishing uh, um, the, our map after five, six years of work. And our view of the city was uh, we thought we understood it. The LIDAR comes out, and suddenly it transforms <laughs> everything. And the map that we had made and thought, this is the final map, is now the penultimate map. Yeah. And the LIDAR comes along, and it shows us. this. And what's what's exciting, though, is we've been able to use that LIDAR to actually pinpoint places inside city blocks that are unaffected by looting. Pracon of Kampang has had extensive looting for uh, a long period between the 80s and 90s. And it allowed us to pick places that didn't have the divots from the looter's pits. That's, uh-huh. that's how useful it was. And right. so it's, it's proof that by using these, these really highly accurate uh, mapping tools that it can assist the process of addressing the questions we need to because it's if you can find out where you're digging and know that your answer is probably going to be there it's so much better than just randomly guessing yeah right we've i mean archaeologists do everything with a good sense of intuition but sometimes <laughs> our intuition is 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 incorrect and what the lidar and really intensive mapping like this does is it helps us out dramatically and and, and it allows you
0: to invest time and resources and, and energy into into um, the real uh, excavation rather than probably rather than just uh, trying to figure out where you should excavate. You know, like that can take, it's all time and money. If, you're, if, you're, yeah. if you can go right to the spot, you know, and, and, and set up shop there rather than uh, ha- having to search around
1: uh, in e- the dark. Exactly. It's almost like a, a shotgun approach versus a sniper approach. Or yeah. like it's more surgical in that we can actually now go in and be pretty sure <clears throat> that this is what we're going to get. And uh, so far, I think a lot of the projects have found what that the LIDAR has really helped them in that way. Um, we've been working at Pragan of Spi since 2009. Uh, the sites be, uh, occupied between the 11th and 13th century, and it's really, it's, the walls are three by three miles. It's, it's huge. And so having this uh, tool has been, the LIDAR has really assisted us in finding not only that kind of information, but we've also found iron production sites that we didn't know existed before, inside the enclosure. So it's it's really providing settlement information, temple information, water infrastructure, but also something from the side of craft production as well. So it's really important.
0: Well, you you spoke to me today about about um, iron and steel, and 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 I wanna I want to get into that a bit. I guess maybe the way to start is that some of your a lot of your work is focused on sort of the the, the rise of the of, of the Khmer Empire. Um, and, uh, I guess the, the, give us a flyover of what that, of what that looks like, but also, um, something that you focus on that I found really fast that, I, that I'd never put two and two together was the, a shift from, from, from bricks to, uh, to sandstone and, and why that matters. And, and, uh, it, it, uh, uh it. What that implies in in, in, a, in a civilization's capacity, but so give us give us a give us a, a, a bit of the the tale on the rise of the Khmer.
1: Okay, yeah, it's it's, I mean the the Khmer Empire starts historically from the epigraphy in 802 CE, and uh, from that point on, we have the II and then subsequent kings building and rebuilding capitals in the area that we now know as Greater Angkor. And so from that point, we can see the rise, the coalescence of the political situation in the pre-Angkor period in the 6th to the 8th century really culminates in the 9th century. So we see this this formation of sort of Angkorian identity around this uh, political religious system that's established by Jayavarman II. And then we see this oscillation outward and inward of various kings, the, the um, passing on of the uh, kingship from person to person, is, is there's a lot of conflict involved. It's not a clear path through familial lines, and that's part of the reason why we see such, uh, such oscillations in the, the nature of um, uh, kingship. But what's important is that the, the Khmer Empire really starts to coalesce in the ninth century and starts to grow. And if you look at the epigraphy, you see them start to build temples out within Cambodia. And uh, you see probably the uh, construction of the road system, which I uh, focused on for my PhD, starting to happen at that point. They start making their own distinctive uh, stoneware ceramics with green glaze. So they're really starting to ferment their identity. And this identity is most visible to us um, through the monumental architecture because it exists. Like yeah. we said with uh, the settlements, the wood structures don't in monsoon environments. But the temple construction, which starts, you can date it back into early things in Ocayo and down in, the, um, in Vietnam. And then you see the slow movement into Angkor Barai and uh, Sambor Puri Cook as we get through into the pre-Anchoran period as the, the uh, elites start to galvanize power. They're using these temple structures as points of... Um, <clears throat> control um, as points of establishing their power. And these are made of brick, largely. So brick is the primary material for building. And we see this across mainland Southeast Asia, extensively. All, all the major states across Southeast Asia rely on brick because it's fairly easy to produce. And they make elaborate structures with it. So the construction of brick in the it, it, does it
0: have limiting factors in, in, terms, of, in terms of height and weight and, and what you can do with brick?
1: Yeah, if you think about it, the, the type of architecture they use in Southeast Asia is corbelled arches. So it's like Lego, right? And yeah. if anyone knows how you're trying to make a space in Lego, you're limited by the length of the blocks that you can produce. So they're not making true arches. So they're limited with the internal space that you can actually construct with brick. So that really okay. limits what you can build. And... So you'll see towers. Towers are the primary thing that you... Right, you see. can go up, because you can
0: stack that weight on top of...
1: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, so you'll, you'll have an internal space, which is where the image would be. You know, if you look at the, the earliest uh, temples that you get in <coughs> army, other places, and it's, it's really associated with the sort of location where the god is. Now, the idea of these towers extends into the period of Yasavarman the, the I in the late 9th, early 10th century. But he starts to use sandstone. Now sandstone was something that the Khmer have used. They know about it. There's a pre Ankorean um, structure at Sambor Prae Cook. It's just this little sandstone box. They made sandstone as a in statuary all the time. <clears throat> so they knew about it. Okay. It's 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 not like suddenly, oh my god, I've got this brand new thing, we've got to start working in right. sandstone. They know it's there, but sandstone is very limited in terms of its distribution in Cambodia, and it's limited in terms of there's three major formations of types of sandstone, and some of it isn't really that useful for statuary because it's too hard, and some of it's too brittle, and so you uh-huh. have to. There's certain stone that's better to use for particular things. It's like uh, we use different woods for construction of different okay. different things, right? So what we have. <clears throat> In the, the expansion of the Khmer starts within this Jayavarman in the second, ninth century. You'll see a, an uptake <coughs> uh, of Yasavarman in this uh, first, in the ninth century. And this is where he establishes kind of downtown Angkor. He starts building in sandstone, just small temples, these towers again. But he's, he's using it and he establishes ashramas around the place. So starts demarcating the landscape. The road system starts to expand, and these, the road system, what it does is essentially brings – it works like a wheel, and all these roads move out into the landscape.
0: So, so it, it, does it expand mm-hmm. primarily by going, by going deeper or, or broader or both? Or?
1: Um, essentially what it does is it – if you think about Angkor, is situated on the northern edge of the uh, Tonle Sap Lake, the Great Lake that provides uh, – essentially it's the rice bowl and fish basket – no – In backwards, it's the rice basket and fish bowl. Pardon me. (laughs) That makes no sense, yeah? Um, Between the, uh, for driving labor, right? So essentially you can feed a lot of people and rice is the main currency of the Khmer. They don't use money. But in the transactions, rice is, you know, the the primary thing.
0: Protein, so it's all there. It's all there. It's what you need. And you can
1: fuel an empire with that. But if, in my PhD, we're looking at the nature of what the roads do, and states don't build roads for no reason. They build them to go somewhere. The roads end up in a temple. And they're like, okay, they're great, so they're pilgrimage points. But if you go beyond those temples, the landscape's full of stuff. And empires need stuff. And the things that Angkor doesn't have is salt. So the road okay. up to the northwest in the Korat in northeast Thailand, um, around Pima is there's salt domes everywhere. There's a huge um, industrial salt factory there now. And there's huge salt pans. So the salt would have been used, brought back down into the Tonle Sap region, and then they would salt the fish.
0: So you're saying not coincidentally a road, <laughs> a road goes right there, temple built at the bottom, and then behind it, we got salt. There's
1: an interesting coincidence, yeah. right? <laughs> so, And if you look at the Northeast Road, one of the ideas that we put up to Wat Pu, Wat Pu is a very important uh, place within the Khmer world during the pre-Ankorean period. And then in the Anchorian period, every single king puts something up there, modifies, puts an inscription. Oh. It's, it's Lingapura. It has important religious significance to, to power. And what is fascinating is that one of the other major things that we find in the archaeological record is bronze objects. Bronze. Everyone's mm. been into a museum, and they may have seen a, a Khmer statue. They make these beautiful bronze statues that are found Hindu, Buddhist um, images. Um, There's no big source of copper around Angkor either. But Wat Poo has lots. So there's another example. Now, this brings us to the East Road. And this is the one that was most interesting to me because Prairikon of Kampong's Five, the site that I mentioned earlier. How
0: how long are some of these longest radial
1: arms of this road? In kilometers, 265 kilometers. I can't remember offhand. I'm like, 100 and. 60 miles maybe like we're, we're talking how, about a, how
0: how how wide and what were they made it like were they were they they weren't paved were, no no this yeah, is yeah there
1: we our view of roads is yeah. we take the roman thing and yeah, think did yeah. everyone built like that no 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 in a monsoon environment you wouldn't do that yeah because they'll get washed out so the the roads themselves at their maximum you think they're about uh five meters high and 20 to 30 meters wide and they're just dirt
0: so, but it's raised, raised. probably for the, for the monsoon um, exactly. issue. Exactly. Yeah.
1: And what's fascinating is that not only do these roads go directly to these places, but they cross-cut the river system. So essentially what they do is they provide, you can go on the rivers that'll bring you down into the lake, which connects to Angkor, or you perpendicularly cut everything with the roads, which means you've essentially created like a, a network. You can,
0: oh. like a subway map, you can
1: get anywhere by going yeah exactly it's it's a it's an deliberate purpose of enabling direct communication across the landscape all year round because the monsoon would prevent use of those areas for the for
0: scholars day. is it that the, the kind of the religious significance of of the temple kind of was a, was kind of clouded some of the some of the more um sort of material economic benefits why why did it take so long? for scholars to, 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 to look kind of behind the music uh, and, 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 and try to think about what was happening in a structural way.
1: Yeah, it, I think that's, the, the problem is it's, it's the biggest, brightest, shiniest object, right? Like the, temple, yeah. the temples, there are so many of them, <laughs> right? right? You've got hundreds yeah. and hundreds in Angkor. There are, the Ministry of Culture and Fine Arts in, in Phnom Penh has now mapped 3,000 sites which date are prehistoric to the Anchorean period. But we're talking probably like thousands, thousands. And, and, of and, and temples. how
0: much comprehensive research and archaeology has been done on these temples?
1: I would say, in terms of if you think about architecturally, most of the big sites have been documented. In terms of excavation projects aimed at addressing a social question outside of Angkor. Maybe three.
0: Okay, so students, if you need, <laughs> if you're thinking, what should I study? What is understudied? I'm interested in archaeology in Southeast Asia. Uh, it's not a bad. Um,
1: it's not bad at all.
0: There's lots of. Uh, there's lots of. Uh, So so uh, you and others figured out f- tried to understand the the, the connection to resources uh, in, in and out and those those sort of radial arms and we see the the emergence of, of a new of, of new technology in sandstone uh, building. Um, you know, you don't think about it when you're when you're looking at the outside of uh, um, of a temple and I remember the first time I noticed it was. When you know they're 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 reconstructing and taking apart and putting back together, uh, some of the some of these temples around Angkor, and you see um, you see these uh, these kind of I's and T's uh, you know, etched into the stone, mm-hmm. and uh, sort of you know, and you say, how does that building stay up? And then, oh, okay, so so what is what do you what do you, if you're going to build sandstone? Uh, uh, I guess where does iron come in?
1: So iron comes in 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 multiple ways. Um, uh, Iron is probably one of the most dynamic uh, materials that was made or in terms of a technology that can affect so many aspects of life. For temples, we've got to think about it this way. It is a tool that allows you to extract the stone easier. It's a tool that allows you to carve the stone. In terms of shaping it. So you can make tools with this stuff. You can make tools with it. Um, You can also use it, and this is the important part for our research, is that they used uh, ties, iron ties that they put in between two blocks to hold them together. So think about uh, an H turned on its side and they put a little, they carve a hole between these two blocks and then they put the iron piece in between these two blocks, and then sometimes they'll just cap it with stone or pour lead over it. And what that does is it gives it a bit of lateral stability to keep the the wall in place. And the restoration teams, which there have been many, many, many in Angkor, have found lots and lots and lots of these. And this remains the largest corpus of iron objects that are available to us, because the one thing that iron loves to do after it's made is to rust. Iron doesn't like being iron in terms of an object. It wants to go back to its natural state, which is an iron oxide. So archaeologically, that poses us with a serious problem, especially in an environment where the soils are acidic and it's wet. Oh. And iron tools are tended to be used until death. So it's not like a bronze statue that would be coveted. Maybe sometimes they will melt it down and turn it into another one. Yeah. But once iron's used, it's discarded. So... If you find it archaeologically, it's ugly. And the nice thing about the crampons, these architectural ties, is that they're in place. And there's lots of them that allows us the opportunity to begin investigating what kind of iron are they using? Where are they using the iron? Is there are there changes in it? Think of it like an economy. How how do and you can look at this from any state perspective is how do they change their Demands over time, if they want to grow, and so the temples, as we see the expanse in terms of the change from material type, but that material type also corresponds with a sudden influx of, hey, we'll build a lot of them, and these are going to be bigger than we've ever built them before.
0: Which, which obviously necessitates, and some of your research points to um, these new sites for for iron ore production. So, if we're if we so you're looking at a, at a cramp on. Uh, you're looking at this 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 connective uh, metal that, that 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 gives lateral stability. Um, how do you how do you know uh, how do you know where it comes from? How do you uh, what do you do? Um, what kind of tests do you put it through to 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 help you uh, figure out um, sites or sources of production
1: and how it is used? It's a very complex process. Um, it's one that uh, my colleagues at of the CNRS in France, uh, specifically uh, Dr. Stéphanie Loire, who at the Saclay Lab with uh, her colleagues, they've developed a protocol for being able to understand this, this process of tracking production through to objects. It's very intensive, both uh, financially and time-wise, and from a laboratory perspective but it's also very extensive in terms of the kinds of information that we need. It's great that we've got the crampons, but in order to understand the story of the crampon, you have to know where they came from, which means you have to know where the potential sources of ore are in the landscape, and then you have to have production sites that are using that ore to see what they look like, because the critical connection between the ore source and the object is actually slag. Slag is the waste product that's produced as you're reducing iron ore into iron. And the parent material will actually have, you know, in some cases, the 75% iron, and then it'll have a whole bunch of other materials as part of the geological formation. During the reduction process, that turns into liquid and is sort of sloughed off, and then what you're after is the iron which coalesces as a solid mass in the furnace. The waste product, this slag that forms around this iron bloom in the furnace, becomes integrated with the clays that they're choosing because they have a particular chemical combination, mixing with the signatures from the ore. And what you get is essentially, think of it like a recipe. Okay. It's the, it's the smelting recipe for that production site. So you may be thinking, okay, well, they've, it's now sloughed off all the slaggy bits and then you take that, that ore and then you take the ore and you hammer it into, or the, the iron bloom, you hammer the iron bloom into an object, which turns into the crampon. This process of iron production, you will never get all the slag out of the bloom. So okay. the little bits of that slag get trapped inside the iron, which then gets trapped inside the object.
0: And so so does it if i'm if, if I'm not mistaken, it goes back to that there there's say there's sort of a, a chemical signature um that that sites of sites of um, iron um, ore have that that show up in the slag that then those bits of that that carry forward uh, into the finished object if you can and th- that signature looks the same if you're able to trace that back and and you you can. You can chart back. Okay, this pro- this must come from this this deposit or this. Is it is it that specific? Uh,
1: depending on how um, how much data you have, because um, it's good. There's variations within ore deposits as well. But um, running it through multiple iterations of uh, statistical analysis, my colleagues are are getting certain about being able to identify production regions around uh, the main sources, which allows us to demonstrate that indeed the ore that they're selecting or the is being used at these sites and then that's being used as a final iron object in the temples so it's we're able to actually literally connect the dots between the ore and the final object through this bit of slag and i mean when i started doing research on this i thought what on slag is a waste product <laughs> it's ugly no one cares about it there's Millions and millions of it looks
0: like this metal blob when, when you when you your pictures are very just yeah this kind of uh, uh, yeah this, this this ugly off all of the of the iron making process yeah it 's
1: a blob, and then you think, how can this be so useful but it 's turned <laughs> out to be incredibly useful for so many things because you can not only track the chemical signature from the ore through to the object but when they are in the process of smelting, they want to make sure that they, there are air delivery pipes in the side of the furnace, and that allows the continuous reduction of the ore. As the ore is reduced, all the waste product falls off and, and becomes and, liquid. And, that, and
0: that's, that's allowing just to achieve high heat? Like, yeah, that constant... Deli- like exactly, okay. yeah.
1: Because you, you need the oxygen yeah. to, to keep it going. And then what happens is that uh, as the smelt progresses, the slag starts to rise up in the bathtub kind of thing. Think about that. And if, if everyone's got, you know, the hole inside of the bathtub and then it'll, when it gets to a certain point for a tub, it'll, it'll go out and that's good. But in a furnace situation, a two year is trying to keep air going in so that the smelt will continue. If the slag goes up and blocks those two years, the, the smelt will stop. So what they do is they have to tap it. They put a hole in the front and you get these cascades of, of slag that wash out. Which so that are, you're
0: getting that waste material out so you can continue to to provide oxygen to the fire. Well, and to, and to, to, to yeah. add more ore okay. into yeah. it as oh, well. Right. Right. So it, right. it,
1: it allows you to continue the process because in some cases you can smelt for days. And yeah. it, it's critical for you to remove this so that you get a larger iron mass inside. And so these big blobs of, like literally, they come out cascading and they've got, they look... I think they look kind of pretty now because um, they look like uh, the lava flows. In yeah. A sense. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, but now I realize how significant they are. And we can actually take those big cakes of uh, slag that come out. And in some cases, they'll weigh, I think the largest we've ever picked up because we haven't, there's some we decided, no, no, that's too heavy, uh, would be about uh, close to 180 pounds. Wow. Of one, one piece. It's it's absolutely massive. And so what we end up with is um, these slag cakes. You can actually cut them in half and they've got charcoal trapped inside from the um. smelt. And so you can actually date the smelt or if... If it's in situ... So you can radiocarbon you know, that. You can radiocarbon that. date it. And so we've been wow. able to actually go around, because you're how, how do you get dates for all these sites? Because it's really hard to find furnaces. Yeah. But what we do is we have used this technique of finding very large slag cakes. We cut them in half with a bandsaw, and then they have stratigraphy, literally, in them, because huh. you'll tap, and then you'll plug, and then you tap, and then you plug, and so you'll get a massive uh, slag cake that has this beautiful layers of... Slag waste, and inside is the charcoal that they're using to fire it. So we can radiocarbon date it, and we've done that for, uh, I think, about forty different sites around uh, the Plum Deck region, which is where we think that the the primary amount of iron is coming from for Angkor.
0: And you've been—you said you've been collecting a lot of a lot of data, but you're gonna 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 write a bunch of this up. But you've already made some kind of interesting observations, which I uh i was i was uh kind of struck by in your in your research and presentation so what uh there was a particular um settlement pattern that you noticed in these um slag sites that that we had just assumed before had had not been a part of that what can I get to tell us tell us a bit of how you came uh came in this new this new revelation about um settlement patterns at these at these sites of production.
1: Yeah, typically iron production is often, if you, if you look at the ethnographic records from many places around the world, that iron production is usually positioned away from settlements. It's often, it's a dirty thing. It's often associated with taboo. And frankly, who wants to have big scale iron production in your backyard? It's It's something that either practically or through... Uh, aspects of trying to keep the knowledge of smelting. I was gonna secrets. say is it,
0: is it a tightly held knowledge too that it's
1: in it, some it, cases it is. Yeah. Because the ability to transform a rock into an iron tool, that's pretty awesome. Right? Yeah. So if you wanna maintain your power in a society, it's often best not to share that regularly. So or if a, you're if you're the soul, mm-hmm.
0: if you're the if you're the if you own if you own that technology or you're the only one uh, who knows how to how to make weapons, for example, um, that's going to be an advantage.
1: Yes. And and states may come and go, hey, um, could we borrow your services for a while? And it's, yeah. it's something that we see repeatedly in different parts of the world. And so those who control these large sources of war are often in this position of um, power when it comes to these relationships. Yeah, the the settlement pattern is interesting because the knowledge that we have ethnographically, ethno-historically in Cambodia is that uh, the traditional smelters are the Kui. The Kui are uh, ethnic minority who w- have multiple groups living in uh, north central uh, Cambodia and also extending up into the korat Plateau in Thailand. And there is one group of Kui who's associated with being the iron smelters. And so ethnographic accounts of uh, their smelting techniques, which they stopped in the 1940s. That's when the last um, active smelt was. So people have been able to do interviews with them through the French colonial records, and then there was a, a French ethnographer in the 1960s who did some work with the, the, the chai, the, the, the chiefs. So we, we have this knowledge of what rituals are associated with this process, where smelting occurs, etc. And so following on the knowledge that if you look globally, you don't smelt where you live, and then you look at the ethno-historic evidence in Cambodia, um, smelting sites are never placed near a village. Uh, there's lots of taboos about who can go there. Um, they would go and smelt for a few days, week, then they come back with their product. As we've been doing surveys around Phnom Dyke, which is about uh, 17 miles to the east of uh, Perekan of Kampong the big complex I was talking about, which we think is actually this entrepot of um, collecting iron from this region of, of Phnom Dyke, um, we've surveyed 250 of these slag mounds around the Phnom Dyke ore source. Uh, Phnom Dyke literally means Iron Mountain, so it's fairly straightforward that this is an important, yeah. <laughs> important site of uh, ore. Uh, it's a mineral deposit that's about seventy-five to eighty-five percent hematite and magnetite, so it's it's an industrial grade that could be used today. Now, the interesting thing about running around this landscape is that there's almost no evidence of Angkorian Khmer temples in the landscape around Phnom Dyke. There is no settlement. There's very little traces of any kind of occupation around a lot of these iron producing sites.
0: So in some ways, that's easy to conform with the traditional it totally does. knowledge.
1: Yeah, yeah. We 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 thought okay, good. They're they're moving from their village because the the ethnographic record says that the the Kui are, are forest people. They, their villages are in forest, and they a lot of their produce and economic um, uh, production is based on. Waxes, woods, resins, uh, forest animals, et cetera, and then iron. And so as we're wandering around, the one thing that archaeologists, if you don't have an architectural feature, will use ceramics as an indicator. And there's almost none. What we found there's maybe a couple sites that have a few bits of ceramics around, which seem to convey this, this, this like idea. Lack of permanent
0: habitation. There's no, yeah. yeah,
1: no one's living there, which, again, that makes sense, right? Who, who's going to live there? Everything changed, though, in... Um, th- there's one site, uh, the Tonlebach, which is situated about two kilometers just to the south of uh, Plumdyk, so it's very close to it. We did surveys there, and it it's weird because it actually has a reservoir, a rectangular one, which is very similar to what we'd find in a, a anchoring Khmer context. Yeah. And there's... Uh, we mapped uh, the presence of about 15 different iron production sites, uh, mounds, slag mounds. And then... Uh, we found a big c- ceramic concentration in between two of these mounds. And it, was, it wasn't that dense. It was, it was enough. And we thought, oh, this is probably something that's been sort of drudged up just from the, below the surface and uh, didn't reveal very much of, of its, you know, probably a later occupation. Um, but what was important, and this is what we, we proposed to the National Science Foundation to get our, our research money, is what if we look at this site more intensively? Our, our studies have been focusing on the relationship between iron production and the state and whether there's a correlation between access to iron and the expansion of the chimera between the 11th and 13th century, which we've now kind of demonstrated an increased use um, between that period, which also equates with the increase in scale and use of sandstone in temples. But if we scale down and we start looking at the, the nature of the who's producing it, back offers this really interesting opportunity because what if we can actually get answers about who's living there? If, if Angkor is, we'll call it buying the uh, iron, what are the, what are the producers getting from this? Because so far, there's oh. no record in the epigraphy of it. So we have no idea what's happening on their end.
0: Of oh, that transaction. Yeah, yeah, yeah
1: we have no, no idea whatsoever. And then the other important thing is that the narrative of the, the Kui being the only iron smelters in the area, we know that from the chronicles of the, uh, in Cambodia, which go, say, in the 16th century, that the Kui were brought into the Phnom Penh region, which is where the capital moved to after Angkor was no longer um, the political center of the Khmer world. They brought the Kui down from this region to uh, smelt iron for them. But that's, that's as far back as it goes. Um, we know that knowledge ends and maybe is, is there someone else that could be involved in it? But the implication based geographically, ethnographically, and historically is that the Kui are involved in this process. So the Tonle backsite site became a very interesting possibility for addressing that question. Do we see a particular signature that suggests to us that this is Kui or... What does it tell us about the organization of the people who are actively smelting and how does that actually relate to what we would see or expect to see from those ethnic historic accounts?
0: Sounds like um, there's no shortage of uh, so what, what's what's next on the horizon? Give us a, give us a sense of uh, what's uh, what's coming up in your research slash publication. Well, future. we
1: we have to publish everything. We're we've got a mountain of data, um, a literal prom dike of, of data, if you want to call it that. It's it's um, and we're starting to piece all these stories together. What we need to do is. The surveys around uh, Phnom Dyke have identified three different technologies, which is fascinating. There seems to be three different ways that they're smelting iron over this thousand-year time period uh, that we've been able to identify so far. We've been able to study the recent Kui style. Uh, we did find furnaces around Phnom Dyke, which was represents the first furnaces at, at Tonle Back, which is uh, amazing. But now we need to see what this third technology is like. So, in the May, we're hoping to go and excavate this to find out what that technology is like. And then we're going to move ourselves back into Praekon of Kampong Svai to look at how the nature of the material culture, what's being brought into Praekon of Kampong Svai, and how that, if it's an outpost, how it connects with what we see with the material culture that we found at Tonle Back, which was actually extensive for trading with all parts of the Khmer world.
0: Well, we look forward to uh, to hearing more about that. Are you going to come back and, uh, and talk to us when you've got that written up?
1: Anytime. Anytime. Look forward to it.
0: Hey, and uh, thanks again for, for being in studio, Mitch, and we'll see you soon.
1: My pleasure. Thanks.
0: Crossroads would like to thank Joe Kinzer for today's music and the Chi for production assistance. 谢谢您的收听,我们下次再见。